0: Welcome to Making a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we are going to take aim at a dinner party truism, at one of these facts that just seems so natural and normal and right that it's repeated in dinner parties all across America. And this is the truism that connects capitalism with particular organizations' relentless search for profit. When we talk about capitalism, we imagine it as this system which pushes everybody involved in it towards the relentless and ever-changing and ultimately self-destructive quest to maximize profits. The problem with this, of course, is that profits are elusive. They come and they go. Once you get something that you know allows you to generate more profit, then your competitors take up that machinery or that innovation, and they start to undersell you, and your rate of profit declines. This is one of those Marxist things which sounds like all Marxist stuff, kind of a combination of grumpy and stuffy, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. And you have different opinions on this if you have different opinions about capitalism. For, you know, dyed-in-the-wool capitalists, this is actually a good thing because it pushes organizations to continually innovate, to keep on looking for the latest invention that will help them reclaim their profit advantage. If you do not like capitalism, then this tendency is either, you know, really good or really bad. It's really bad because it keeps on pushing capitalists to exploit things in the search for that vanishing profit. Exploit the earth, exploit the people, exploit the workers that you have, just so that you can grab hold of that profit. In, you know, Orthodox Marxism, this is actually something that in the long term is good because the tendency of the rate of profit to fall pushes capitalists into increasing acts of exploitation, which further and further and further make clear the fundamental paradoxes of capitalism. As we get more and more exploited, as capitalists push workers endlessly and endlessly and endlessly on to work harder and harder and harder, everybody will suddenly wake up and go, oh, capitalism is bad. We need to have a revolution to stop it. But in this episode, I'm going to argue that there is much less of a clear connection between capitalism, profit, and organizations. First, I want to argue that historical organizations are not necessarily motivated by profit. Um, in the early Industrial Revolution, it's actually really hard for industrialists to figure out how much profit they're getting. Um, we're used to to living in a world in which numbers are cheap, in which it's easy to like go onto an Excel table and put in a bunch of data and you know run a pivot table and then have a bunch of different permutations of the kind of data that you're working with. But not so in the 18th and 19th centuries. Everything had to be done by hand, which meant not only did the recording of financial data take a lot longer, but the analysis of it took a lot longer. You had a lot less flexibility in what you reported and when. Early factories figured out their profits, you know, maybe once or twice a year, and it wasn't a gigantic element of, you know, what helped them make business decisions. In the uh, legendary Soho factory of Bolton and Watt, people did not look at particular new kinds of, of innovations that they were running and go, oh, is this helping us with our short-term profit. There was a bunch of stuff that they invested in and invested in for a really long time that did not lead to short-term profits. And there's a practical reason for this. These early industrialists didn't need to care a lot about profit because as soon as you get a coal-fired factory and nobody else has it, well, you're able to make really, really, really massive profits. I think that um, the early uh, cotton factories had profit rates of about 50% a year, which is just crazy. Also, these early factories didn't need to constantly calculate their profits because they weren't funded by the same sorts of abstract, collective financial entities that we expect large organizations to be funded by today. Instead of being funded by groups of investors, represented by shareholders who you know, go to board of directors meetings, these early factories were often just funded by individuals, by friends, by local connections, local banks, and these people did not need the same sort of rigorous, you know, abstract financial oversight that later organizations would need that would push them to make this sort of accounting innovations to be able to watch profit. Second is that it's unclear that even when you have these large distributed groups of investors and the kind of accountancy expertise that you needed to figure out what the rate of profit, it's actually unclear whether Capitalists wanted to make profit. They might want to be maximizing something else. There's much hand-wringing in the British historiography about what happens in the late 19th century with British industrialists. The problem is is that where, as in the 18th and early 19th century, British industrialists were awesome. They were, you know, the most technologically advanced. They kept on trying new things. They, you know, kept on pushing the envelope. In the late 19th century, British industry seems to lose out on the next big thing, which is called the Second Industrial Revolution. America and Germany instead are the people who take the initiative in new kinds of ways of making things uh, to do with electricity, chemicals, and stuff like that. Britain loses out. It gets some big organizations in food and, and, and oil processing, but it seems to miss out on the Second Industrial Revolution. One of the arguments why is that instead of, you know, teaching their kids how to be good industrialists, the capitalists of 19th century Britain didn't want their kids to be capitalists. They wanted their kids to be elites. And so instead of investing in, like, teaching their kids engineering and setting up business schools and making sciences of modern management and doing all those good things that American capitalists did... Instead, the British capitalists wasted their money on country houses and in sending their kids to Eton and Oxford, where they learned things that were not useful, like Latin and Greek. And this is even more financially irrational when you realize that after the uh, opening of free trade in 1848, there was a you know prolonged agricultural crisis which made the rate of return on landed estates much less. This wasn't like the 18th century where you could buy a landed estate and it actually you know gives you profit. No, a landed estate in the late 19th century is increasingly just kind of like a bauble that rich people have to prove that they're rich. Um, there is a great uh, quote from *The Importance of Being Earnest*. Uh, that I'm going to read to you today. Lady Bracknell asks Jack, what is your income? And Jack says between seven and eight thousand a year. Lady Bracknell makes a note in her book, in land or investments? Jack, in investments chiefly. Lady Bracknell, this is satisfactory. What between the duties expected of one during one's lifetime and the duties exacted from one after one's death, land has ceased to be either a profit or a pleasure. It gives one position and presents one from keeping it up that's about all that can be said about land jack says i have a country house with some land of course attached to it about 1500 acres i believe but i don't depend on it for any real income in fact as far as i can make out the poachers are the only people who make anything out of it this is the 19th century perspective on land it is something that is meant as a proof of your position as being a high status person but that cannot actually pay out cash it's clear that these motivations of capitalists are cultural things, that they're following particular kinds of cultural scripts about what rich people should do, about what it means to be high status. This is not a question of, you know, rational capitalists who are doing whatever it is in their power to increase the profit of the organizations that they're associated with. And even when you look at large organizations, you see that they spend a lot of time not necessarily on protecting their profits, but on, you know, making sure that they avoid the kind of cutthroat competition that, you know, Marx identified as leading to the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. Large organizations, for one, are incredibly complicated, and they're necessary to do a lot of the stuff that happens in the second industrial revolution, like make railways and make gigantic chemical plants that, or aluminum or car factories. And this leads to really big first mover advantages for those firms which are able to get off the ground before others do. Because of this, these large organizations tend to exist in oligopolies, you know, not not monopolies, but, uh, you know, small groups of organizations that understand one another and don't step on one another's toes. Uh, The people in these organizations, they don't want the kind of cutthroat, constantly disrupted world that would lead to the lots of innovations and the constant rate of profit falling. Instead, they want stability. They want to manage the kinds of disruption that cutthroat capitalism gives. Um, indeed, it's often better for these kinds of organizations to cooperate rather than to compete, not just so that they can screw over their workers and their consumers, not just so that they can you know, say, we are all going to pay our workers $10 a day and nothing more but also because it allows them to cooperate and coordinate on essential things in their businesses, like saying, making railway gauges the same width all over the country, or leading to particular sets of technical standards, or setting out, you know, things like safety standards that everybody has to abide by because cooperation is so important there leads to be a tendency not towards you know massive competition but rather three ways of making oligopolies the first is cartelization Um, this happens a bunch in british industries it happens in the railway industry and the telegraph industry it even happens in the quinine industry where the british and the dutch producers of quinine uh divide up the world and say look British producers of quinine produce quinine for India, Dutch producers produce it everywhere else. But a really, really, really great example of this comes instead from the oil industry. The early oil industry was divided up geographically. Certain companies had control over the oil, even undiscovered oil in particular parts of the world, and they also in turn served particular parts of the world. American oil industries would not bother with going, say, to the Middle East, and British oil industries would not bother going to America. A really great example of how this leads not to a massive search for profits comes from one of the foundational moments of the 20th century oil industry. In the early 20th century, this guy named William de Arce, um, discovers gigantic oil reserves in Persia, and his activities lead to a company called Anglo-Persian Oil, which later becomes BP. And this is often, you know, touted as this wonderful moment where all this new oil comes online. But we're not dealing with an organization that wants to maximize short-term profits. We're dealing with an organization that has to recognize, you know, political constraints and is in the business not of profits, but of stability. So what happens to this massive pool of oil? Well, it's kept offline, For about a dozen years. It's not tapped initially, because if they tapped it, then it would send oil markets into a panic. It would reduce the rate of profit that everybody would have. And furthermore, they needed this oil not only to generate short-term profits, but also as a way of generating the kind of political clout that they needed to get more international oil concessions. One of the big deals that arises from this is that the uh, British Navy invested I think half of the capital in Anglo-Persian oil as part of a concession that says that it will get the fuel so that it can use the raw you know, fuel oil that they get from these Persian uh, oil fields to fuel the British Navy. Another example is regulation. Um, Government regulation can be a way of establishing cooperation between companies by establishing rules of the road and standards. Um, A funny thing that I learned about this comes from uh, uh, the railway industry in Britain, which is basically in a competition between cartelization and regulation. Um, There was a bunch of hand-wringing in the British Parliament over whether or not it was moral and legal the parliament to regulate the railway industry and this gets really funny when you realize that they debated for 40 years over whether it was legal to insist that trains have brakes Um, you can see this kind of regulation establishing cooperation in things like uh, the american telecom industry where uh, entrants into the field have to all agree to basic rules of the road that are produced by the state a third A strategy to ensure cooperation is to not cooperate and go it alone, but this is incredibly expensive. To do it and to still be able to profit off of the way that modern organizations work, you need to build large systems in your quest to make a monopoly. This happened in the American railway industry, and it was hugely costly, and it actually ended up, you know, not working. There was an overproduction of railway lines as individual uh, railways tried to go out and build national systems all by their own so that they wouldn't have to cooperate with others. In each case, I want to make the note that the important thing is that the people who are making the decisions are not making decisions necessarily to increase profits. They're making decisions to preserve long-term profits and the stability of their business. In each case, they're avoiding the kind of direct cutthroat competition that we see in our naive basic view of capitalism. This insight led the doyen of business history, Alfred Chandler, to argue that in the modern world of large organizations, real economic activity does not happen in the market where people are competing on the price of things. Instead, Real economic activity happens within firms, within large organizations, and the important thing to look at is not you know, price signals, but rather the decisions of middle and upper management who are making the kinds of moves that move capitalism forward. The metaphor is this, the invisible hand of the market is replaced by the visible hand of management. And you can see this even today in the peculiar trend of management consulting and private equity. In all of these cases, you get, you know, MBA armed suit wearing sharks, the people who someday maybe I will teach if I end up in a business school, going into companies and telling them how to be rational capitalists. They tell them how to make the kinds of sharp, difficult reforms that will allow them to shift their status from, you know, stable company that does the same thing over and over again to higher profit disruptive firm. And the fact that they can do this over and over and over again, the fact that MBAs can go into company after company and say, okay, you're doing things you know, irrationally shows that maybe our understandings of of what capitalism is, that it's this rational uh, uh, pursuit of profit is wrong. And when we understand capitalism and the economy, We should be looking more at how the economy is embedded in society and culture, how these things are not, you know, different from one another. A capitalist is not simply a machine for making profit, but they're a citizen of a nation. They're an individual that has particular goals. They might not necessarily just want a bigger bank account, they might want honor, you know, privileges, positions. Thanks very much for listening today to Making of a Historian. I'm sorry if I sound all stuffed up. I think I might be coming down with a cold. I have to thank Duncan Barton for our image and Jonathan Lear for our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, Send me a message. Share us with your friends. Do all of those things that you do with things on the internet that you like. Uh, Check out the website at historian.live. And I will see you guys uh, maybe later today with an episode about business history. Thanks very much for listening.